immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 59. With me, your host, Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. Hello. Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm doing good. Excellent. Um, Great to be here today. Looking forward to speaking with our guest. We have a very special guest today. Associate Professor Hyunkook Lee. For many people from our industry, he needs no introduction for a number of reasons, um, including because he already been on this podcast. Hyunkook is a reader, i.e. Associate Professor in Music Technology and a Director of the Applied Psychoacoustics Laboratory at the University of Huddersfield in the UK. His research over the last 10 years contributed to advancing and understanding the three-dimensional audio perception and developing new 3D audio reproduction techniques. He has invented various psychoacoustics-based 3D microphone arrays, including PCMA3D and ESMA3D, whose principle for high microphone configuration has been adopted by award-winning SHERPS or TF3D array. Recently, he has been focusing on researching and developing perceptually optimized techniques for Sigstoff audio rendering for the extended reality applications. Hyun Cook, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Oliver. Thank you for inviting me again. It's a great pleasure to be back here. For those who are not aware, Hyun Cook was a guest, um, I believe, episode 13, which is going way back now, over three years ago. It's already been three years. <laughs> And a lot has happened, and um, I'm looking forward to talking about all the interesting work you've been doing. There's no secret you are very famous amongst the spatial audio circles because of all the exciting work you've been putting out. By the way, at the prolific rate, uh, I don't know when you sleep and where you find time to do these things, but it's really impressive. But just, just briefly for our younger or newer listeners, can you just briefly introduce yourself and just tell a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. Um... So uh, I started as a recording engineer uh, when I was um, a teenager. You know, I wanted to become a recording engineer. So uh, I started working for a recording studio in Seoul, Korea. Uh, and uh, when I entered the university, I actually um, I studied biochemistry for one year. But I, I wanted to uh, really, you know, study sound recording properly. So I moved to UK. And went to the uh, University of Surrey, uh, did the sound recording course, the Tonmeister course at Surrey. Um, and yeah, there I, I kept um, continuing doing recordings and I did my internship at Metropolis Studios in London, which was all great. And I came back to the uni to finish my course, um, my degree. And uh, that's when I started my research first time. Uh, my final year project was about uh, psychoacoustics related to surround microphone techniques. I investigated uh, some localization related topic on uh, surround microphone uh, techniques and, and reproduction of recordings. And that's when I really became interested in uh, pursuing research as my career. And I went on to uh, do my PhD at, at Surrey as well. Uh, Francis Ramsey was my my supervisor, and so I carried on my acoustic research in surround sound and 
well, after, after the degree, I went back to Korea and worked for LG Electronics for about five years. Um, my, my job was about uh, developing spatial audio effects for LG mobile phones and uh, mobile devices. And uh, I, I also uh, participated in the MPEG audio codec standardization. So I traveled a lot, attending MPEG meetings all over the world. And yeah, so I met a lot of great people. Um, and then at some point, I felt that I, I really wanted to come back to academia to carry on my own research in spatial audio. And uh, in 2010, I was lucky enough to find this job at Huddersfield um, and got the job and <laughs> married uh, in Korea. And 15 days later, after our wedding, uh, we were in Huddersfield. <laughs> so it was a big uh, new beginning of my my um, my life. So yeah, um, and ever since then I've been working at Huddersfield, doing research in three D audio, um, recording, reproduction, and any other psychoacoustic related topics. Um, yeah, so it's been great at Huddersfield, and uh, I've been very active in AES. So. Uh, that's where my my network has grown and um, met all these great people who I'm collaborating with, and I've got great students, great colleagues to do work, uh, research together, and so yeah, here we are. <laughs> Let's talk about some news. What happened in industry in the last few weeks? Well, I think uh, there was a new release of um, uh, Sony's 360 Reality Audio Creative Suite, which now um, allows uh, um, support for, uh, I think, many, lots of DOS. <laughs> um, and will kind of make it a little bit easier to use, hopefully. Yes, um, um, I saw the announcement and uh, I think a lot of people are quite excited about it for for, for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, purely because the news have been dominated by um, Apple Music and Dolby Atmos. And um, a lot of people knew that um, Sony have been working on this project, but haven't really been making um, advancements at the same pace. And it's just kind of nice to see that um, other potential alternatives out there. And, um, but yeah, um, the product has been around for quite some time, but I guess they they just expanded it to um, more DAWs, um, which is good news. Um, I'm personally not a user, although I have tried a prototype in 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 the early days. Ha- have you had a chance to use these tools? Well, um, or do you know anyone who have have done project or mixed any music or anything else um, using this particular plugin suite? I haven't played around with the 360 Reality plugin suite, but I have. Um use I've played around with kind of a version that I don't know if it's publicly released um before kind of a while back uh so and I don't know how much that actually kind of feeds into the 360 reality um suite so it, I I you know I'm always interested though in these new technical releases and seeing how different companies are coming at uh developing these tools um especially since you know this is kind of now a lot of com- these big companies are getting into developing these tools, so it's, it's exciting to see how these companies are approaching that. Yeah, and um, 
and and they use different spatial audio codec MPEG-H, which is different to Dolby Atmos. Um, although they have got their own proprietary binaural renderer. Um, so yeah, it's a different flavor and slightly different way of doing things. I wonder which music streaming platforms the, the Sony 360 Reality format is c- currently adopted uh, for. Um, was it Tidal and Deezer? I don't personally know. Amazon HD as well. King Cook, ha- have you had a chance to um, use uh, Sony's new tools at all? Uh, yeah, I haven't actually used the rendering tools yet, but I've uh, listened to various 360 uh, reality audio content even before they actually started um, the actual business, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think it was a few years back um, because it's based on, uh, I mean, it's using MPEG-H codec. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had access to uh, various MPEG-H content uh, from a few years ago. And uh, I've been checking out some recent releases of 360 Reality Audio as well as Dolby Atmos tracks available on streaming services. Uh, I'm using Amazon Music HD and I've uh, been listening to some of yeah uh, currently available 3D music, binaural music, um, yeah. So I've got some experiences in. Yeah, it's 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 nice and it's healthy to have um, different choices and different options. And um, you know, like I mentioned already before, we've been heavily focusing on Dolby Atmos and Apple Music because all the recent adv- announcements have been uh, related to to that specific format. But um, it's it's good to see that other big companies also um, advancing in in that direction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. you know, being involved in this space since like since 2011 when none of these tools existed and you know watching all of these big companies start to develop tools and and these creative suites for being able to work in this space um it is exciting because i've had to build a lot of my own tools so um not half you know seeing kind of what uh you know other companies can build and kind of integrate into software platforms that uh i can't necessarily do on my own is a great uh thing to see yeah I'd, I'd love to see more people creating music uh in binaural and in 3d you know natively not not just on mixing you know old uh content uh, to 3d you know because i think most of the currently available 360 ra and all the tracks are on mixed versions and uh to be honest yeah there's not so much difference you can hear between stereo and 3d sometimes and sometimes people yeah i'll, I'll probably talk about it more later but uh, a lot of people actually prefer stereo to to binaural or 3d version not because uh the technology is optimal but i think it's we are in a very early stage of figuring out how how to create you know how to use this technology to create um you know, good sounding content, you know, like mixing techniques, recording techniques need to evolve more, I think. Well, and I also, one thing I I kind of always harp on is, you know, that I think you also, you have to compose for space. It's it's another dimension that you're adding to your compositional process. And, um, you know, being able to utilize that in the compositional kind of thinking of what you're creating, just allows you know that you know that that experience to just be that much more um interesting and exciting exactly yeah i can't agree more um and i think probably the reason why it's happening it's more of a business decision 
amongst the record labels, they're trying to support the uh, back catalog uh, has spatial or pseudo-spatial audio um, in place in order to supply consumers and kind of new trend, new vision, because obviously it will take time for new generation of content creators to understand how the technology works, build the skills and uh, create the the ecosystems within they they can actually start producing this content. And, and then it will, you know, the world will be populated with new, fresh stuff organically. At the same time, I think um, all the old back catalog is just being um, remixed at insane uh, pace ju- just to, you know, fill the void and uh, to be able to offer subscribers something to listen to because I guess nobody wants uh, the momentum to be lost at this point. But anyway. Okay, well, before we move on to the interview, um, Monica, you recently hosted an Immersate event. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and tell us what happened there. Yeah, so I recently hosted actually a couple of events, um, like just two weekends ago. Um, The Immersa event was a panel of immersive audio specialists, uh, um, including some that we've had on this podcast before, Jean Pascal and Anna Monti. um, Both of them were a part of the podcast. But talking about um, the different ways that we can uh, create the kind of create content and move it between different immersive audio formats. So how do you create something, um, and distribute it in not only a binaural capacity for VR, um, but also for a full dome capacity. If you're going to do an ambisonics render versus a wave field synthesis render versus a, um, you know, 5.1 render, uh, what are the challenges and struggles that are kind of in that space? And then what are, how do you kind how do you, uh, think about, uh, you know, how creating for um, these, you know, how does that change your process of creation? So that was really interesting. Um, we had a really great uh, um, uh, experience with that. And I really enjoyed hosting everybody for that uh, panel. Um, the other thing that uh, I worked on was I did an understanding immersive audio uh, workshop for Sound Girls. And I think we'll kind of, uh, you know, this should kind of correlate with some of the conversation we're going to have with Young Cook uh, today um, and talking about, you know, this concept of how do we define immersive audio and how there are so many different definitions of immersive audio that have kind of come out and, um, you know, working through that process of, you know, for me personally, how do I like to think about immersive audio and that um, definition, you know, and how do other people think about that? So, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk more with Young Cook and uh, get into some of these discussions. Awesome. And we'll make sure to include all the relevant links about these events so you guys can check it out and potentially sign up for upcoming events in the future as well. Today, we're going to talk about one of your recent publications on a conceptual model of immersive experience in extended reality. Can you give us an overview what this research is about? Um, What inspired you to look at this topic specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll try to be as concise as possible (laughs) because it's it's a big topic. uh, We can talk about it hours, days. (laughs) But yeah, just to whistle through the paper... um, well, where do I start? I, I think, yeah, um, just give you 
about why I started doing this research and looking into this topic. Um, well, it's been like my question, you know, for ages, how to define immersion? Because this term is probably one of the most widely used in audio and, and well, not just audio, but in, um, you know, in this uh, creative industry these days. Um, but I felt that this term is often used uh, in a wrong way because, you know, I always thought that, you know, immersive audio should not be defined by the format or technology itself, you know. I mean, technology is always very important uh, to consider, but uh, it's not just technology that defines whether a content is very immersive or not immersive. You know, if you, um, let's say, if you listen to uh, a singer performing in a really nice-sounding uh, church, you know, there's only one sound source, but, you know, the the lovely reverb and reflections you're hearing, they surround you and and basically can definitely immerse you, you know. There's no technology involved. There's only one sound source. There are no, like, multiple loudspeaker array or anything. But you can still sound very, very surrounding and enveloping, and it also can involve you in in the in the performance. You know, everything needs to come together: the content, uh, the narrative, you know, and and the spatial aspects as well. You know, but uh, not one of these factors define how immersive a content is. You know, in an absolute sense, there are a lot of uh, dependence and the factors that you need to con consider, contextual factors and and technological factors. So basically I had um, um, this question of how to define immersion, but also how to measure immersion, how to quantify immersion, you know, how do we assess, you know, how to compare different um, uh, VR, AR content and define which one is more immersive, you know, how do we do that? So there was no any consensus or a common framework people use for doing this kind of research. So that's a bit of a headache that I've had for many years. <laughs> and uh, uh, when um, the COVID started, you know, when the lockdown started two years ago, um, you know, all my ongoing experiments had to stop. <laughs> we were doing some really exciting VR experiment in the lab and it had to stop. And then we started working from home. Um, and that's when I actually decided, okay, I'm going to read all these papers I wanted to read for ages, but I didn't have time. But now, you know, I'm kind of forced to stay home and can't do any physical experiments. So um, everything moved on to binaural, um, you know, and, and also I decided to read uh, all these papers and try to sort of synthesize my own uh, thoughts and, you know, come up with a model to simplify um you know, these uh, complex concepts and, and you know, maybe come up with some kind of general framework that I can use for my future uh, research in this area. So that's how it all started. And um, basically this model I came up with, um, uh, I haven't got a name for it, but it's, it's basically a model of overall immersive experience. So, um, and it's got uh, these three main... Uh, pillars, uh, concepts, which is physical presence, self-social presence, and involvement. So I'll, I'll briefly explain why I chose these three uh, specific terms and concepts and, and 
and other concepts that uh, Intel related um, to these main concepts. So I'll just briefly talk about this. So basically, there are so many different uh, terms that describe immersive experience, or usually it's called immersion. But this immersion term is a very confusing one, and there are I identified uh, a, a source of confusion, uh, which I describe in details in the paper. But uh, when you look into um, the literature in games, especially, you know, there are so many different terms used for describing immersion, such as perceptual immersion, narrative immersion, ludic immersion, sensory immersion, uh, strategic, tactical immersion, and so on. And But if you look into the definitions of these individual terms, some of those terms, like perceptual immersion and sensory immersion, they connote uh, the concept of presence, the sense of being there, sense of being in a virtual environment with or without um, virtual beings. So even if the, the, the adjectives used are different, they essentially talk about the same thing, the sense of being in a virtual environment. But other terms like imaginative, narrative immersion, or ludic immersion, systematic immersion, these terms all talk about involvement, you know, how involved you are you know, into the narrative of the content or story world. You know. so, so I thought that perhaps the... Um, we can simplify all these concepts into um, a few groups of concepts. So basically, uh, everything related to presence is primarily a passive experience of immersion, because you know you're given certain type of cues that uh, create a certain kind of sensory uh, experiences. You know, sense of being there. You know, it's related to, for example, acoustic cues. Of the space, in 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 the context of audio, um, but uh, narrative uh, related immersions, you know, this is all about active experience of immersion. You know, it involves your cognitive effort, um, and it's not as simple as um, just being fed by some cues and and then you know it's like a low level attributes. You know, like uh, like uh, like you, when you feel like it's sweet or salty, you know, <laughs> or it's cold and hot, and that kind of low-level uh, sensory, uh, you know, attribute, uh, you know. But that, that the cognitive attribute is much more complex to understand. But both are important, you know, in terms of creating immersive experience. And existing standalone um, definitions of immersions, there are uh, several definitions. Of immersions, uh, I found that um, most of these um, uh, standalone definitions are actually biased towards only either sensory element or cognitive element. The existing definitions tend to be biased towards either um, sensory immersion or cognitive immersion. But I found that um, these two elements are actually interrelated, as I will explain a bit more later. The, the main source of confusion when it comes to the definition of immersion is um, some researchers in the presence uh, research discipline, they tend to define immersion as a technical technological process. 
So for example, uh, researchers like Slater and his followers basically use this term immersion as a, as a technological, um, technological process. So let's say, um, like if you have a multi-channel audio system, 3D audio system, that can immerse you into the sound field. So that's what they call immersion. But some other researchers, mainly from uh, telecommunication or uh, psychology, they define immersion as an experience, as a psychological uh, experience. So this causes confusion. You know, for example, when somebody says, "Yeah, a higher level of immersion leads to a stronger sense of presence," then what does immersion mean here? You know, if if there's a system, then it would be more accurate to say a more advanced immersive system is uh, the stronger the sense of presence would be. But if it is an experience, you might say a higher level of immersive experience leads to a stronger sense of presence. So uh, the presence researchers basically put presence um, as the highest level concept. And immersion is basically a technical, technological process to, to produce presence. But in my opinion, immersive experience is the highest level concept, and it has sub-dimensions, which are presence and involvement. Mm -hmm. So the presence, uh, there's a lot of research in presence, and um, but the most widely accepted typology of uh, presence uh, by Bioka basically splits presence into three sub-dimensions, physical presence, social presence, and self-presence. Um, physical presence is about sense of being in a virtual environment. And social presence is, is about a sense of being there with a virtual being or, or object. Mm -hmm. And self-presence is about being there as if you are somebody else. You know, you're, you are the virtual being and you're interacting with other beings in the virtual environment. So essentially social and self presence, they are correlated. And physical presence is more about uh, sensory immersion, so to speak. So it's more about perceptual um, thing, but social and self-presence. It, it, it requires perceptual uh, elements, but it's also more of a cognitive element, uh, which you require interaction with, uh, with the virtual beings. And you need to, you need to be engaged um, not only uh, mentally, but also motor engagement is very important, especially, for example, in VR, you know, when you play tennis, uh, you know, with a virtual um, opponent, for example, then, then you basically, you need to move your body to, to interact with the virtual being. And that motor engagement is very important. And that also uh, can boost the sense of presence. Being there is actually boosted by uh, how deeply you're involved in, 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 uh, in the activity, or vice versa. So the, the, the fact that you are very involved in, in, in something can also boost the sense of presence. Like even like when you're reading a novel, you know, you're so into the story world and you can almost imagine that you are in that story world, you know, like, like the feeling of being transported into, into the virtual world. So um, what I propose in my paper is, uh, in contrast with some other researchers separating the concepts of presence and involvement completely, 
I claim presence and involvement that they are interrelated. And um, so in the model that I, yeah, as I said, the physical presence, social self-presence and involvement, they are the main three pillars of the uh, immersive experience. And the important thing is they, um, they have interplay to produce uh, immersive experience. So the weighting between these three concepts um, is, is a future research topic because I want to work on uh, defining, you know, depending on the type of content, you know, the weighting between these three will differ. And it's a complex topic to, to research about. But yeah, I'm interested in investing into this uh, in different contexts like music, listening experience and, and VR experience and location-based AR experience. Uh, relative weighting among these three factors might differ. So um, these three factors are interrelated through some engagement process. For, for example, a physical presence and social presence. Um, the common elements between the two, the intersection is sensory motor engagement. So, you know, in, in when we perceive things, I mean, the movement of our body or head movement is, is very important. Um, so like head tracking in binaural audio, you know, it dramatically improves the way we perceive uh, the locations of sound sources. It resolves front and back confusion. So basically, the sensory motor contingency um, helps us improve our perceptual ability. So, yeah, we can perceive the environment much more quicker and, and easily, you know, when we move our body. So that sensory motor engagement is very important for physical presence and self-social presence. But between involvement and, and social self-presence, um, this task motor engagement is very important. The, the ability to interact with virtual beings in a virtual environment is, is the key thing. And between physical presence and involvement, the narrative engagement uh, is, is very important. If, if you're not interested in the story, then, you know, obviously you're not going to be very involved in, in that uh, content, but also the physical presence may become weaker as well. Um, but there are also some really important subjective factors, like, um, you know, to be able to feel that you are there, like in a virtual environment. You know, we these days, there's a lot of discussion about plausibility, uh, authenticity, you know, as opposed to authenticity, which is more like a perfect replication of the real world. Plausibility is said to be more important. So even if uh, it's not 100% uh, physical, accurate replication as long as you've um, the, the virtual environment meets your expectation you know if if it feels like yeah if it is a plausible experience then that's probably what uh, the users need so that way we can also you know uh, reduce the complexity in in the system you know instead of um, using a very heavy uh, computationally heavy system, you can actually um, optimize systems based on uh, some important perceptual cues. You know, it, as long as you represent the space in a plausible way, that's probably what's needed. So for that, you know, internal references, our subjective internal references and previous experiences play a really important role. Um, and uh, for involvement in social presence, the 
your skill set and previous knowledge are very important. For example, if you want to play uh, like a again tennis game in, in a virtual environment, you know if you want to be really involved in the gameplay, you need to know how to play tennis first of all. Uh, you need to know the rules of the game to be perfectly um, involved, and and then personal preference. You know this is really important as well. Um, if not interested in the content itself, then wh uh, whatever technology you provide with, you know, even if it's really like surrounding, enveloping binaural sound experience, if you're not interested in the music you're listening to, you may not really feel immersed at all. So. Um, yeah, the, all these uh, low-level and high-level concepts, they, they work together. And um, so in my model, I didn't include uh, this concept of flow. Uh, flow is, is a very famous concept uh, in social science and, and marketing as well. Um, but this flow concept, uh, I felt this is uh, separated from immersive experience. They can be related eventually, but... Um, if you think about what the flow means, the, the flow concept is defined as the level of enjoyment. Actually, there are several um, requirements uh, for the flow concept. Basically, you need to be able to complete the, uh, the task and, and also uh, you need to be able to enjoy the process and you need to feel satisfied about yourself being able to finish the, the task and so on. And you need to be very much involved into the task. But um, immersive experience is not necessarily enjoyable. For example, if you uh, think about playing a boxing game in virtual reality, you know, uh, you get brutally beaten by the opponent and, and you lose the game, then, well, you might want to play again to win the game and then you lose again and again. And that, that kind of experience is never enjoyable is it you know you might get really frustrated and 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 even feel angry and <laughs> but you still get very much uh, involved in the in the task uh, the immersive experience might be very high but um, the flow uh, degree might be very low for example you know I mean I play uh, FIFA football game with my son time to time, you know, mm -hmm. I see my son getting really immersed in, in, the, in the gameplay. But then, you know, when we play together as an opponent and, you know, if he, he, lost, he loses a game that he wants to play again and loses another time again and, you know, gets really frustrated. <laughs> but he still gets highly immersed. Uh, I can see that. Definitely. So I think uh, these concepts and, and also Quality of experience is another concept that's sometimes linked with immersive experience. So it's even called the quality of immersive experience. But again, I think when it comes to quality, it's more about satisfaction and enjoyment. And I think uh, that needs to be uh, separately defined and uh, evaluated uh, you know, from the immersive experience. And... Yeah, I think um, these objective factors are so important that um, you know, depending on the your your cultural background or your level of technical understanding or your preference and the type of music you're listening to, you know, uh, even if you provide the listener with the same level of technological process, you know, for example, binaural audio, you know, if you have all this cool binaural audio. Um, 
stream, you know, and you listen to them over headphones and you feel like, oh, you're the, the spaciousness and environment you feel uh, excellent. Even so, you may not be immersed at all if you if you don't enjoy the content. But likewise, if if um, if the technology provides really interesting um, elements in terms of, you know, when you when you listen to mm, so let's say when you listen to some kind of. Uh, soundscape recording you capture in an outside environment you know it's just an ambience isn't it but you may not be interested in such kind of relatively dry type of sound or you never have actually paid attention to this kind of soundscape recording and if you listen to it in mono or stereo you may not actually get drawn to this kind of content but when you listen to it in binaural really realistically simulated binaural recordings you may actually get more interested in this kind of content so for example um well if we talk about visual experience you know you may not be a fan of like animals living in africa you know or you may not be a fan of like a documentary film if you watch this kind of documentary film of uh, african animals and natural habitats or whatever you know on a tv on a small screen you may not be very interested in uh, watching this kind of content, but imagine that you're watching this kind of film uh, recorded in, you know, 364K or IMAX kind of, you know, this widescreen environment. And this level of presence you might feel it would be very high because of the technological advance. And that may actually give you, uh, make you more interested in this kind of content. You may not have actually thought about, oh yeah, okay, it's so realistic to see all these animals surrounding yourself, and you may want to actually find more about the animal life. And I don't know if it makes sense, but you know, this kind of interaction between um, presence and involvement, um, I think that they they are eventually uh, ultimately contribute to. The overall level of immersive experience. So, as I said before, the weightings between these three elements basically determine how much immersive experience you can produce in overall sense. So, like some content may not require uh, a high degree of presence. You know, I mean, if you play some games uh, on a PC screen, you know, even if it's not VR, even if it's not 3D audio, you may highly immersed into the gameplay and then the overall immersive experience might be very high still but if you are playing some kind of you know let's say 3d recordings of a musical concert you know in that case listening to uh let's say 22.2 recordings or, or excellently recorded vinyl recording may give you much more immersive experience than just listening to stereo so it depends on the context and the content type and so on. There's so much to unpack here and it's absolutely fascinating. And let's kind of go back and just maybe touch on a few takeaways from here. I think to me, it seems like it's it's quite complex and convoluted. And um, hence, maybe this is the reason why there hasn't been like a well-defined model thus far. You know, people coming from different uh, disciplines and different types of science um, have a slightly 
different interpretation of the overall thing. Obviously, we, we're trying to come at it from audio standpoint uh, to see how we can apply certain factors to in, in a more practical sense. Um, and uh, to me, it sounds like physical presence and involvement is a really critical component in relation to auditory aspect as well as the technology. So head tracking, be able to localize the direction of objects as well as the detailed oralization of the environment that provides a very strong context. These are kind of things that contribute heavily into the physical presence and uh, sense of being immersed in a particular environment, as well as the um, interactivity with six degrees of freedom, room scale, if we're referring to virtual reality, for example, and full, full agency and be able to do whatever you can within your perceivable world will provide you with that really strong platform regardless on a kind of wider context. And obviously, it's a really good example of how you can be surrounded by 150 speakers and not be immersed whatsoever. And at the same time, maybe a bed story uh, told by your grandparent when you were a child was so immersive and it was just one voice in the room with no technology whatsoever. And we need to be clear about those kind of psychological, philosophical elements to it as well. Have a a lot of comments. <laughs> and, uh, this, this is a concept. And this is something I, I, I've also thought very deeply about. And uh, um, I do, you know, since we were talking about this concept of flow, you know, I do, I do kind of want to debate maybe one point, like where, um, you know, this idea that flow has to be enjoyable. I don't know if I would fully agree with because I think that you know, if I'm working on a, a project and it's really intense, um, I think it's the challenge of that experience, which is sometimes not necessarily pleasant, but is what actually like pulls me into this state of flow um, because I have to be so focused on the designing of whatever I'm doing. And um, especially coming from, you know, live sound and working in live sound, like thinking about, you know, being, you know, fully present in, in that sort of experience is something that, you know, it's it's the challenge that really draws me in. I completely agree with you. I think when when you're fighting for your life, like I mean, that's a really extreme example. Like you know, you you running away from a lion. I think that's that state of flow. That's the least enjoyable experience you can probably imagine because um, you're facing potential death. But your entire consciousness and physiology is fully engaged, and all your resources are dedicated to that one task. I don't know if you if you agree with that. I guess flow is yeah. I mean, it's a very broad concept. You know, we cannot really define it with one sentence. But uh, based on what I read, you know, from the flow papers, the original uh, paper, and there is also another paper I read about flow. Um, yeah, it defines well specifies some some requirements. You know, that there are eight elements, and and it's it's ultimately about happiness. You know, how, you know that's basically what the uh, the author uh, main main point is. You know, it's about happiness, and and you know and and the focus of course being involved and and you know like totally immersed in in some uh, task. You know that that's uh, also maybe leading to flow, but essentially. I mean, my my point is that it may be difficult to actually, uh, you know, uh, equate immersive experience uh, with flow concept together in in the same model. Because as I said, you know, um, immersive experience is not necessarily enjoyable, and and the flow concept 
uh, is, is closer to to um, to this yeah feeling satisfied and and uh, an enjoy enjoyable experience. I think that that is probably the main difference between the two. But they definitely they can be related. They definitely interrelated, but uh, like too complicated to kind of put it all under one umbrella. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In a big picture, you know, if you look at it from the high level, in fact, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe flow can embrace immersive experience, or maybe immersive experience can embrace flow as well. But you know, it's it's a it's a complex um, topic. You know, I mean, that's actually one of the reasons why I. <laughs> Wanted to create this simplified uh, framework and and the conceptual sort of model, because when it comes to um, I mean, I mean, as scientists, uh, you know, when we do experiments uh, in VR and AR, uh, we want to measure the degree of you know immersive experience. And, and where do we start? You know, what kind of questions should we create? You know, there are a lot of uh, survey questionnaire for presence uh, measurement. You know there are a lot in that presence world, but uh, you know when it comes to immersive experience, um, there is this discussion of a debate about whether we need to put presence as a higher level concept or immersive immersion as a higher level concept. But as I said, you know the reason why immersion was regarded to be a sub dimension of presence is only because people used to define immersion as a technological process, not as a psychological sort of phenomenon. But I think, um, yeah, that's why I want to use these two terms separately, immersive experience and immersive system, instead of just saying immersion, because <laughs> that's really confusing. Well, and especially, you know, I mean, I think um, immersive, you know, technology, you know, is also kind of a term is in that sense of, you know, what kinds of technologies are we creating that create this sense of immersion and, you know, what it, and I think that's really when we're talking about, especially, you know, spatial audio, but also, you know, all of their kind of VR, uh, full dome, um, you know, XR, MR, AR, you know, what is, you know, that, you know, how is that technology, you know, kind of contributing to this immersive kind of experience? And that, that, that is where I think there is some, you know, convolution that happens is, you know, a lot of times you can, you, you, there's different companies that'll, you know, market something as immersive and they are, you know, commenting more about the fact that it's just drawing you in further and the technology is just, it's maybe it's a higher definition. Maybe it, there's ne not necessarily an interaction component. There's not necessarily a 360 kind of field of view component or a 360 audio kind of experience. It's just about that engagement and something that's kind of creating a more immersive engagement. But if, I think especially when we're talking about, you know, this new kind of uh, revolution of immersive, I, I feel like it really does like focus on that immersive technology and like what are these technologies that are being developed that create these kind of more um, fully kind of 360 experiences or, um, you know, where and the presence concept actually is something that I feel like I, uh, coming from the full dome space and working in those environments, um, isn't necessarily as important to those kinds of environments because you are physically present in the space. And so it's more about, you know, how you're, you know, like how far the dome goes down and kind of creating more of that 360 experience, how that audio is really kind of transporting you into this world. 
In terms of narrative transportation, you know, you don't really need this kind of technological process necessarily, you know. But I, I think technology can boost that experience, you know. For example, if you if you um, are reading a novel, you can still be feeling present, you know, in the story world if you're really uh, into it and forget about the real world. But you know, if you if you are in a VR world and actually uh, there is less cognitive effort required. You are there already, you know, in VR, so you don't have to really imagine or, you know, think about this virtual world. Uh, so that's kind of sensory immersion, you know, that can be beneficial, but it's not, a, you know, like, a, um, it's like, a, it's not like the most uh, essential element, I wouldn't say. And, and also, I think it's quite... Uh, Dangerous to assume that um, 360 sound or binaural or spatial sound can automatically immerse someone. I, I mean, this term immersive audio, uh, I don't actually like to say immersive audio too much because I'm not sure. I can't guarantee whether this recording or, or this content can actually immerse someone, you know. It's ultimately a subjective term, isn't it? We, that's I, I also I prefer to use spatial audio uh, to immersive a lot of the times. It's more accurate. It's, for example, like um, maybe like a really expensive, amazing sports car. If you don't know how to drive it, it's pretty much pointless. All these immersive technologies, whether it's VR or a sound system or or software. These are different kind of vehicles and delivery methods and tools that you can use to deliver that vision. But it's up to us what we put inside, what we do with it. Yeah, I, I think that's where uh, you know this drawback of uh, you know, conventional presence research is, because as I said before, uh, they tend to assume that the higher the level of technology is, the stronger the sense of presence will be. So that means, in, in an audio sense, you know, if you surround a listener with thousands of speakers, they would be feeling more present in a virtual space. But you know, we know as audio engineers, there are so many other confounding factors. You know, <laughs> if you have more channels, then you have more problems. For example, like more problems with um, coloration, you know, phase issues, and all that kind of stuff comes in. So. Adding more uh, sensory channels doesn't automatically mean that you will be feeling more present or more immersed. So I think uh, it's very risky to call immersive audio in a sense. Um, and also, recently we have done some um, experiments in binaural audio. Uh, my former student Pablo and I uh, actually we have a paper that was presented at the last AES. It's called the binaural. Uh, uh, binaural mixing for popular music. So, yeah, we compared eight different scenarios. Uh, well, the one condition was fully stereo and the other extreme condition was fully binaural. And there were some other sort of, you know, other conditions where binaural and stereo uh, were mixed. So, for example, you know, drums and vocals were panned in stereo. It was just, you know, inside the head, whereas guitars are binaurally panned with uh, some virtual acoustics, so you have very good externalization, um, and, and vice versa. So you, you have uh, stereo guitar and binauralized vocals and drums and so on. So we had uh, various um, uh, combinations of uh, sound sources, how, how they were mixed in, in, in binaural and, and stereo. And 
the results were very disappointing because, well, initially um, we thought that yeah, vinyl audio might actually produce a stronger immersive experience and and uh, a better step spatial fidelity and and timbre fidelity, but um, stereo was basically graded on top of the scale, so it was rated the highest, and the fully vinyl was rated uh, at the lowest. And some other conditions where, you know, drums and vocals were just uh, in stereo inside the head and the guitars were widely panned and outside the head. That condition actually was rated uh, equally high as stereo. So this, I think this is a good example where, you know, blindly mixing everything binaural, you know, doesn't necessarily lead to any better experience than stereo. Um, people may actually be more immersed, you know, in stereo content because they are used to the tonal balance that stereo offers. Especially with music. In, especially music, you know, the vocals, you know, maybe listeners might just prefer the vocal and snares and kicks inside the head, right in the middle, as they're used to hearing all these sources in stereo music. I mean, as soon as you try to externalize the, the phantom center source like vocal, you know, it can introduce some kind of mm-hmm. tonal, you know, um, I wouldn't say distortion, but, you know, applying HLTF filtering, you know, can actually alter the original spectrum. And that may not, uh, they may not produce a better experience than just having them in stereos. But some other sources, like widely panned sources, you know, you can have um, better externalization with a source in the lateral positions. So if you pan everything to like, for example, 90 degrees and, and apply some binaural filtering, that can actually produce some more interesting experience compared to just um, having it in stereo. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a very early stage, you know, where sound engineers need to figure out, you know, what's the best way to produce music in binaural and, and in 3D. You know, just mixing everything in Dolby Atmos doesn't mean that it's going to be more immersive than stereo. Well, I think by like binaural um, audio or Dolby Atmos, you know, like kind of Dolby Atmos to, you know, binaural, like really it's, it, it's just, it's creating a different tone. And I think that um, you, and a different sound, and if that sound isn't what you're going for, then that sound, you know, isn't necessarily going to be what you want. And I, th- I think you have to, you know, a- as an audio engineer, like you're always thinking about sound and tone and tonal quality. And so, and, you know, and frequency spectrum and, uh, you know, and so, yeah, if that, that's the sound you want. And I think that through working with these technologies, you can develop new tones, new sounds, like new ways of even um, like one, you know, re- research experiment I-, I did was, you know, recording a piano with like 12 different microphones, you know, kind of surrounding it and then keeping putting, you know, virtualizing them into an ambisonics, you know, field and then rotating like you know, a set of like the, like a five like five of those microphones around while keeping the other microphones stable, and it actually changed the tone of the instrument, and it created a new sound. Um, that's what I think is very interesting, kind of in in the like development of this is just 
uh, of these technologies is that we're able to experiment with new tones, new sounds, new ways. Yeah, that that tonal aspect is very important. I think it can also it alone can also boost the immersive experience, you know, without adding any spatial effect. Well, um, I, we also found um, an evidence that you know tonal quality is actually uh, the most important factor for presence more important factor than than environment or other spatial aspects i mean of course this is limited to the context of this study uh, where we compared uh, different loudspeaker formats from 22 channels to nine channel five channels and two channels and uh, in the context of down mixing of, of uh, acoustic recordings um, with some static analysis and it shows that um, Overall listening experience is mostly correlated with um, listening environment, so the spatial feeling of being surrounded by reverb. You know that was highly correlated with overall listening experience, but uh, tonal quality was highly correlated with presence. And presence and environment were not necessarily correlated highly. So actually, that's what most people would expect. You know, listening environment is all about immersing people and you know filling the space with reverb, and but that that doesn't uh, necessarily lead to presence. I mean, again, you know, it could be limited to the context of our study. But do you mind me asking, was there musical content? Classical recordings of orchestral music, uh, string quartet, uh, choir. So it was a very special recordings, you know, made in a nice concert halls, uh, four different types of uh, music recorded um, in four different uh, spaces. But yeah, so I was thinking about why, and it was quite surprising initially, but then thinking about it, you know, the tonal quality, tonal fidelity is the key, you know. For example, you know, if, if you're recording a violin and and if the recording doesn't sound like a violin, you know, if it sounds like like a distorted, like, <laughs> I don't know, guitar, you know, when you record it violin, and it's not going to give you the presence of like listening to the violin in the console hall. <laughs> it kind of goes back to what you were saying about plausibility. Is it believable? Is it compelling? Yeah. There is even a term for that. Uh, this uh, plausibility can actually be understood as uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh yeah, Lombard and Deaton. Actually, there's a paper that uh, discusses about social realism and, and perceptual realism, and these two concepts are also very related to this topic. You know how how likely it is, how likely the stimuli stimulus you know would occur in real life. You know. Um, if if you're recording a violin, it should sound like a violin, you know. It doesn't have to sound like exactly what you hear in that space, but when you listen to the recording, you know, it needs to give you that impression that you are there listening to violin. So you can also warm it up a little bit with the EQ and adding more reverb to make it more distant. You know, all sort of effects can be added, but still it needs to sound like violin. <laughs> so the tonal quality, so for example, if we record uh, an instrument with different microphone techniques, for example, and and when you down mix them into stereo and, and, and surround from 3D, uh, a potential issue might be a phase related issue, you know, like comb filtering issue, you know, especially when you have like uh, reflections and you know, direct sound captured with high channels delayed, and, and and then you know when you 
combine all these signals together, and when all these loudspeaker signals are summed at the ear positions, there will be some kind of conflict effect happening because of the delay times and the level of direct sounds from each channel. And that can actually cause some sort of spectral distortion, and, and that could affect the naturalness of the sound. And I think this is highly related to the presence. Mm. It's not just a spatial thing, but it's, it's probably more tonal thing. In, in because another evidence we found is that depending on the, the recording techniques used, two-channel stereo even had a really high score in presence. It was almost the same as five channels and nine channels um, uh, 3D format. So the format didn't really affect presence, but then when the presence was rated low, there was a potentially some sort of conflict effect happening. Interesting. It's it's almost like this: uh, we overcooking it, and the technology just adding this additional color that is somewhat alien to our more natural perception of sound. It would be interesting to to see how so those channel based surround formats compared to uh, maybe like object based format that maybe a little bit more transparent in that sense, um, see if there's any differences there as well. Just a quick detour, because I feel like we always talk about these things in the context of music and for a good reason, but um, allow me to ask selfishly, because I'm currently um, doing research in a very specific context and and um, would be interested to hear your opinion, uh, guys, on this. Can spatial audio by being uh, executed in a way where we are heavily engaging presence, physical involvement, interaction, elevates that so-called state of flow so that as a result, it reduces cognitive load and therefore it can impact factors such as maybe information retention or even going back on the loop, feeding back into the greater sense of presence of that reality, that context, wherever that might be, regardless of it's, you know, um, uh, kind of providing you with pleasure, entertainment, or it's it's horrible and anything in between. I'm thinking all these like takeaways that we can draw, that we can actually connect to the auditory component um, of the wider conversation. And can we by utilizing the tools and methodology correctly within certain contexts, we can ultimately reduce the cognitive load and therefore elevate all these aspects that define the sense of immersion ultimately. I think so. I think so. Yeah, this cognitive load reduction is a very important aspect in in VR. I think, uh, um, I mean, the whole point of using, uh, you know, better sensory simulation is is to 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 make it almost indistinguishable from the real world uh, perception. So to do that, you need to uh, reduce the cognitive load. You know, I mean, if 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 the technology doesn't provide, so for example, like a sensory motor contingency, as I mentioned, is a very important aspect. Let's just take an example of binaural uh, head tracking. You know, if the head tracker doesn't work, for example, if the resolution is very low and if there is a long delay. You know, then you probably need to actually make more efforts to make sense of what's going on. You know, you can't localize a sound source accurately enough when you rotate your head, and then 
that will basically increase the cognitive load. But if if the sensor, the head tracker is accurate and if it has no lag, and it's just like a real life, you know, as you move your head and the the, the outside environment, you know, the the actual real environment interacts with you as you as you expect, and that will definitely uh, reduce cognitive load, and that will in turn help you get more involved in the task itself and you be very natural you know like in everything you do in a virtual uh, environment of course that will involve some kind of haptic simulation and and motion sensor and all these kind of things as well but yeah I, I don't know if I understood your question correctly but yeah definitely um, yeah reducing cognitive load by providing uh, appropriate technological process it's, it's very important for immersive experience and, and presence as well. I mean, I think one of the interesting elements of, you know, using, to me, is more, I think, the interactive component of um, placing people in these in a, in a virtual environment for training purposes um, and creating some form of interaction, I think, allows um, a different, uh, you know, different brain processes to activate and being able to, I mean, I know, you know, I think different people learn in different ways. I know I'm very much a tangible learner and is one of the reasons I think I was attracted to working in audio engineering because it's a very tangible and also it can be a very physical um, thing. And having that physical interaction is, makes it easier for me to learn things. Like I, you know, instead of just reading something on a piece of paper or even listening to something. And so any, you know, I think providing um, the opportunity for more interaction um, can, I, I think that that may be more so than, you know, just the immersive technological element of it would be, um, I mean, unless you want to consider interaction a part of a, an immersive technology, which, you know, again, I think we could, in this context of this conversation, say that maybe interactivity is a you know a part of immersion um and creating immersive experiences but i think that you know that having that interactive level could add to a learning experience for somebody which direction do you feel we need to go next to kind of to help us to unpack this even further and put our feet firmer on the ground in terms of understanding uh, how to describe this define this and quantify this so um, as I mentioned before, the the weightings, perceptual weightings among the three concepts, physical presence, social self-presence, and involvement, it needs to be studied. I mean, it needs to be investigated systematically uh, using different types of um, content and in different contexts. And, and then we can better understand, you know, what elements are more relatively more important than other concepts, you know, and for specific applications. And for that, also we, we also need to look into the low-level attributes. Like, uh, for example, in an auditory uh, experience context, you know, let's take an example of externalization. You know, what um, are the most important parameters for providing externalization? I mean, externalization is a very important Thing and it's a widely researched topic these days, but that's a still low-level concept, you know. 
when it comes to presence and involvement, that acknowledgement can help people feel more present. If you know, especially in an audiovisual context, if the auditory distance doesn't match the visual distance, that can, you know, break down the experience potentially. Uh, that can affect the presence consequently. But um, but still, you know, if other elements are strong enough, this kind of low level uh, element maybe not the highest priority in terms of creating a good experience, immersive experience. So I'd like to find out uh, what parameters, what low-level features are most um, salient. I don't know if that's the right word. But what would, what kind of parameters are most related to the actual perceptual experience, you know, when it comes to presence, involvement, and, and immersive experience overall? Uh, well, what, how would they be dependent on the type of content and, and the contextual factors we discussed, like uh, different cultural background and uh, different age group, maybe, you know, their experience level, all these things. So, yeah, uh, again, it's a very early stage. And I, I propose this model as a sort of um, starting point, uh, as a, it's like an initial framework. And I'm sure um, as I conduct more research and other people do more research into this, um, yeah, this model might be revised and improved. And we'll find out, you know, what, what factors are actually um, relevant, you know, in, in specific context. And I think that that will help greatly uh, researchers uh, finding the right methodology to evaluate immersive experience. And without like... Um, uh, a solid and and simple to use uh, framework for for measuring immersive experience is is difficult because people use different terms and different uh, methods and and they all publish papers and eventually you know the readers may get confused and it might be difficult to sort of interpret results from different studies uh, it, it would be almost difficult to compare them impossible to compare them directly because they all use different uh, strategies and different terms. So I think that's a big challenge at the moment. And, and you know, my paper was just a small effort to sort of help, you know, simplifying this uh, process. And so we can actually, yeah, share our research more, more easily. Well, as you said, this is a very deep uh, discussion topic that we could probably talk about for days. Youngkook, uh, what are you currently working on and um, what are you, what is also the best way to find out more about your work? Yeah, um, these days I've been mainly working on. Um, well, first of all, um, we are developing um, a spatialization tool um, where you can uh, produce panoral audio and also multi-channel audio easily, uh, involving some um, co-virtual acoustics. Uh, we'll also allow for sixth of uh, location-based AR experience as well, you know. So we are trying to sort of make this uh, framework uh, of some and some tool sets, uh, SDKs, um, because I want to use this all for um, this research that I mentioned about, you know, doing research for immersive experience. We need uh, tools, um, infrastructure, you know. <laughs> so we are, we are trying to establish them at the moment. And, and some of these tools will be available. Uh, we aim to release this 
uh, at some point next year. And um, yeah, and also I've been working a lot on um, externalization. You know, what what's the most important uh, physical parameters to create externalization and also improve externalization in binaural audio. So that's been my my recent focus. Yeah, you, you can um, visit our website. Uh, it's hot.h.uk, h-u-d.h.uk slash APL. Uh, APL is the name of my lab. So if you visit uh, Huddersfield APL website, you can find all the resources we published before, you know, publications and data sets, some plugins, some online apps. Um, you can find all of those uh, on our website. And you can also visit um, Zenodo. Uh, it's, a, it's a repository website where you can upload and download um, a large data set. So uh, if you search my name on Zenodo, you will be able to find all my previous uh, PowerPoint slides, actually. You know, I've done quite a lot of uh, presentations before, and uh, yeah, some of my slides are available on Zenodo, and also um, some database of 3D recordings and 3D impulse responses we captured uh, in previous years. This, For example, this 3D Marco database um, it's available on Zenodo, so you can download that and explore some 3D recordings. Can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? I guess my background as a sound engineer uh, really helped me uh, identifying uh, research questions that, um, that can actually create some direct impact in the industry. You know, I, I always care about the sound quality, you know, because... Uh, you know, I, I I do research because I want my my the recording I do and the audio production I do makes sound better. You know, I want my research to support uh, my practical work, and and also I'd like my research to be useful um, to the community. You know, practitioners. You know, um, content creation is the key. You know, if, if especially in audio, you know, we do this audio research to benefit. Um, uh, people in industry, not only uh, people in academia, you know. Um, so I always try to identify uh, problems and issues in in practical world. You know, as a sound engineer, you know, if I find, let's say, I'm trying some tools, and if I find uh, some issues, and if it doesn't work as I intend, then I kind of try to think what's the fundamental issue. And what kind of research should I conduct to understand the fundamental side of things? So, uh, I design experiments and re conduct research, and and then the findings eventually feed back into my practical applications. And I think that that routine, the cycle of research, you know, always uh, starting from uh, practical applications, and then going all the way down to the fundamental side of science and you know research, and then eventually feed it back into um, the uh, practical applications. I think that has really helped me produce research that has been uh, thankfully useful to the community. I don't know if that was the right answer. <laughs> I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. <laughs> now, there's definitely a, a, a big lesson there and... Um, I, I I totally understand uh, where you're coming from, and 
in in some sense, this particular episode was a metaphor to exactly what you just talked about, because we often talk about technologies, formats, practical things, how to do stuff, how to use stuff um, for, for specific things. And um, especially in such a kind of emerging or re-emerging field as spatial audio, we need to take a step back and look at these more deeper, more philosophical, more fundamental aspects that uh, de- define this field and this uh, science um, and art uh, at the same time, which makes it even more exciting and more complex. Especially, I mean, I, th- I think conducting scientific research, especially in the audio field, um, really requires artistic understanding, creative side of things, you know, because eventually, you know, you want your research to be used in, in practice. But then sometimes um, uh, lab-based studies, you know, very much controlled um, hardcore psychophysical studies, for example, you know, you use um, like controlled noise or sine wave signals and you find some fundamental uh, elements of human auditory system, for example, then the issue is when you take that uh, finding from uh, controlled research and then apply it directly to um, musical signals, for example, most of the findings you you found from papers usually don't work. <laughs> you may feel that, oh, okay, so what's the problem? Um, because you know the signals we deal with in in the real world are much more complex. It's difficult to model, difficult to generalize in in a simple sense. I mean that's why you know most controlled research try to use noise and and this kind of context free uh, signals. But but eventually you know if we want to improve what we do in audio, uh, in in music production and all this, we really need to actually understand. Um, you know, it's a practical side of things. And it's important to verify your results uh, with the practical recordings and, and and in an actual, you know, a practical context. So you need to understand the music production side of things. You need to understand how the audience receives, uh, uh, you know, the, the quality, how they perceive quality is very different from how professional audio engineers perceive quality. They have very different perspectives. The focuses are different. But then, you know, if um, professionals, researchers, they do what they do only and don't tr- try to understand the other side of the spectrum, you know. And I think that's where sometimes the, 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 um, this gap occurs, you know, like the, all the uh, chaos <laughs> currently happening, you know, with Dolby Atmos um, uh, delivery, you know, mix engineers complain about why, you know, the audience listen to the mixed, I mean, well, the mixed delivered to the audience, you know, like Apple Music, um, Apple devices use their own renders and and uh, mixing engineers who are working in Dolby Atmos render, uh, they have no idea, you know, how the audience will be able to receive. I love the fact that we made a full circle but still came back to Dolby Atmos somehow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that's another thing to discuss. This is like, uh, I feel like it sounds like a trailer slash cliffhanger to another episode, um, which I absolutely would love to do with you, Hyunkook, in 2022. Because I think um, 
your work in the field of recording and all the techniques kind of deserves a completely special or different mention. Because um, today we were focusing about this particular paper, which um, allow us to go on all sorts of tangents and uh, talk about kind of spatial audio on a more fundamental level. Maybe really cool to um, you know talk about the the science and art of recording, which we don't really do that often, to be honest. So that would be a really good thing to do. So, okay, well, let's wrap up. Um, I just realized it's um, it's the last episode this year in 2021. It's been a ride. It's been amazing. Um, so I would like to thank you, Hyunkook and Monica, for being part of today's show. And uh, I'd like to wish all our listeners happy holidays, happy new year, wherever you are in the world, look after yourself and uh, I'll see you in 2022. Thank you so much, Oliver. Thank you so much, Cook. Very wonderful conversations today. To be continued. Thank you very much for inviting me again. And yeah, it's been fun discussing these things with you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott, Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.